This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety May all beings be happy, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, though with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. All right, Catherine, over to you. Thanks, Chris. And as some of you may have seen in the um, list that came out, uh, I intend to be um, reflecting on in the next three weeks the three poisons. Um, when Marlene said I had three weeks, to do, um, I thought, oh well, there's lots of threes. What three? What set of threes shall I do? 
And that was the set of threes that for some reason just immediately jumped into my mind. Um, but maybe before we start talking about that, if you feel up for it, I'd invite you to just um, spend a moment reflecting on in coming to meditation, in engaging in this practice, what is it that you hope for? What's it that you aspire to? And I'm going to invite you, if you feel like it, just to put a few words into the chat because I'd like to use any reflections from that that might at some point be useful in our reflections tonight. So no, no pressure, you don't have to, but if there is something that you can think of you know, what is it that you aspire to, you long for? What is it that you hope for in, in engaging in the practice? So that very positive thing that attracts us to meditation, that attracts us to this, um, this study, this reflection, this time. And I'll just pause for a minute or so to give you time to use the chat, which is down the bottom in the middle if you've not used the chat too much before. What is it that you long for? What is it that you hope for? So I'm, I'm looking more for the pull than the push. I'm having a, a quick look through. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. Mm. Mm. There are some things which are which are showing up, um, as well as some diversity. Thanks for that. So um, I intend to come back to some of the some of the reflections there. When um, I chose the three poisons: greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, my suspicion is that these are mind states that we all know, um, and my suspicion was too that the, they are most likely to be the opposite states of mind from what it is that is calling us in the meditation. Um, and just having a look at, at some of the things um, that have come up, there's a lot of peace. People have uh, identified its peace and clarity, um, contentment being less stressed, being kinder to others, lose the ego, peace and connection, equanimity, mental clarity, calm, reflectivity, discovering who I am, 
being a better person for others, coming together with others, being present, being calm. So a wide variety of things which are drawing us here. And, and many of those are in some ways um, the opposite of the experience that we have when we're caught by the three poisons. Um, I think everybody has an intuitive sense of how it is when greed, hatred, delusion are present and we know that they're not so good. And I suspect that um, in addition to some of the things that we've put down in the, the chat now, there is a sense that we believe that through meditation, or if not a belief, at least a hope that through meditation, through cultivating the mind, we can cultivate more wholesome states of mind. Being here means that we are interested in developing those good, skillful, wholesome states of mind. And that's worth taking some joy in. What good intentions brings us all together? Understanding that greed, hatred, delusion are unhelpful states of mind is not something that's unique to Buddhism. Um, they were understood before Buddhism to be unhelpful states of mind and many worldviews, many religions, world religions currently um, agree with them as being problematic. The, the word, the language poisons um, is a really interesting one and I'll, I'm gonna explore that a little bit more um, through our time together, because the word, of course, is a translation from a Pali term, kilesas, and all words point to an experience. Um, the word is just a, a marker, if you like, of the experience. And what, what is that experience? It's the experience of those uh, states, greed, hatred and delusion, that's important. What's the experience of greed? What's the experience of hatred? What's the experience of delusion? What, what do those mind states generate? What behaviours, actions, words arise, tumble out when we are in those states? the experience of being caught by one of those greed, hatred and delusion is the opposite experience to what most people put in the chat. It's a, a state of a lack of freedom, a lack of peace, a lack of ease. When those states are present, the experience, at least in my um, 
experience of it is that there's reactivity, there's tightness, there's tension, there's stress, there's contraction. And I, at least with the first two, greed and hatred, also experience a real narrowing of perspective. It's all about what I need and want or don't want. Um, and then there's a distortion in how we see the world through that narrowing of the pers perspective. The, the use of the word poisons, and I said I'd come back to that, poisons um, is a bit of a, a, it's one way of translating um, the cholesterol. Some more contemporary translators are using uh, other words for that. Could be the three unwholesome roots of suffering. And that points to the consequences of them being present. Afflictions, defilements, destructive emotions, disturbing emotions, negative emotions, and even neuroses are translations that um, are used. And words matter. If you were here last week um, with Bhante Sujato, there was a bit of a discussion on how he's translating meta. And if you'll remember, his use, his, his current translation is just to translate meta as simply love. But for, there were some people that, that that wasn't a useful translation. Um, and I'm not, this, this isn't in any way um, criticising Bhante Sujato. None of the words, no translation will fit everybody because all of our, all of us have different um, life experiences that mean we'll come into contact with certain words in a way that we just reject them um, and don't enable us to open up to what might be possible. As I said, um, understanding greed, hatred and delusions as poisons doesn't work so well for me. Um, so I prefer either unwholesome states of mind, unwholesome roots of suffering, uh, something like that. Poison feels a little bit scary and uh, makes me want to reject it out of my system, makes me want to lock it up, push it away, don't open it up, keep it out of reach, um, something a little bit more accessible. Uh, means that I'm more likely to be able to sit with it. Um, that uh, reaction that I can have when I think of them as poisons of, you know, pushing and shutting them off, um, you know, we know that denial and suppression doesn't work as a way of transforming difficult emotions. Um, we might get momentary relief from it, but in terms of long-term transformation, we need to be able to turn towards what are very normal states of mind, um, normal and unskillful, normal, normal and likely to uh, result in suffering. So how can we, the language um, that we use uh, is important to encourage us actually to turn towards these states of mind with curiosity, with interest, uh, rather than adding another layer of reactivity um, when we've already got a contracted uh, mind state. 
So there's just an encouragement there to substitute uh, your preferred translation. And just while I'm talking about um, trying to turn towards these mind states, I'm going to put up a, a slide. And the intention, my intention in putting this slide up is to even more normalise the variety of mind states that a human being has. This comes from um, Professor Paul Gilbert. And Paul Gilbert is a clinical psychologist, a professor of psychology, and has developed, um, he's a Buddhist, and he has developed compassion-focused therapy. And in his, his research and writing, he proposes this um, evolutionary understanding of how we regulate emotions. And he suggests that we shift between these three systems to manage emotions. Each of the systems, we've got the, um, at the bottom, we've got the fight or flight system. On the top left, we've got what's in effect the drive system or the reward system. And then on the right-hand side at the top, we've got the affiliative, caring, soothing system. Each of those have different um, chemicals, have different brain systems involved, um, and distress is likely if we don't have enough of the, the green one, the affiliative, connected care and contentment system. But it's very normal for us, it's vital for our survival, but we also have the red, the fight, flight, freeze system, and the blue, the drive or the resource uh, seeking system, the reward system of um, experience. We, we, need our met, we need our needs to be met. Um, and we also need to turn away from danger. So remembering that greed is our primary focus today of the three unwholesome mind states, three core unwholesome mind states, if you like. Um, we could see that greed is an excessive activation of that blue system, the reward system, the resource seeking system. One definition of greed is that it's an inordinate desire to acquire or possess more than one needs. And of course, that could be in all sorts of different um, ways. It could be wanting more money, food, sex, status, power. Greed can show up in lots of different ways, even though probably it's most often associated with, with food and money. Um, but it comes in, in all sorts of situations. The 
the inordinate or the excessive activation of that desire, um, striving, acknowledges that when we're talking about greed, we're not talking about the, the basic wanting or need for our needs to be met for survival. Um, it's an interesting uh, grey area, I think, to explore the difference between um, being aware, being mindful of a human need, moving to fulfil it, compared to feeling greed. Um, and for me, that the distinction is often how much awareness I have and how much spaciousness I have, how tight I am, how feeling I am under the influence of this need to just follow my own, um, own needs. Certainly when I um, experience greed, it, it, it feels like greed is calling the shots. Um, that focus narrows and I become single-minded. In some ways at its most intense, I feel imprisoned in that uh, state, which connects to a, a really lovely quote from Eric Fromm. Um, he says that greed is a bottomless pit which exhausts the person in an endless effort to satisfy the need without ever reaching satisfaction. And just as a little sidestep, um, I mentioned that many worldviews, modern religions um, also understand the the problematic nature of greed. And in Christianity, three of the seven deadly sins are associated with, are connected to, to greed. Um, we've got lust, excessive activation of the sexual need, greed itself, and gluttony, so indulging in, in that greed. Quite um, just worth pausing and, and noting that a, a difference between the notion of sin and an unwholesome mind state is that with sin there's a sinner. Um, and when we look at unwholesome mind states, it's important to bring along with us the, the other elements of Buddhist psychology and philosophy. Um, and within that is the teaching of non-self the idea that there's no essential permanent self that these mind these mind states belong to rather it's when these when certain conditions come together greed will arise it's not personal like other aspects of our experience mind states are a process which have particular causes and conditions and then continue to condition what comes next. For me, that is so useful in remembering that because it can interrupt the tendency which the human mind has to take these mind states personally, uh, to see them as belonging to me, a self.
it's very easy um, for that automatic habit of believing that whatever we observe in the mind, thoughts, feelings, they're mine. So it's easy to go from feeling greed, being aware of greed, to believing I'm greedy. That mind state can be claimed or owned by a sense of self. The thought, I am greedy, then often is followed up, um, at least in my experience, with a good dose of negative judgment, negative self-judgment. Um, greed, I am greedy, therefore I'm a bad person. Uh, easy for those things to come together and feel like they are fused. So mind state fuses with this sense of self. That mind state, identification, judgment becomes one big blob of experience. And in that situation, you know, it's not, e not difficult also for shame then to jump in on top. Um, you know, what a defective human being I am to have all of those things as part of my experience. And what a dead end that is. Um, not at all conducive to transformation, more conducive to torture. Uh, so seeing greed and hatred and delusion as, as unwholesome mind states, not personal, but conditioned and conditioned by factors we didn't choose. Um, for me, encourages a much more self-compassionate response. And, um, you know, the increasing research into self-compassion is showing us that being able to respond to difficult experiences with self-compassion is a much more supportive um, response for internal change, for that transformation. despite what we might think and have practiced for decades, uh, self-punishment isn't so conducive of the transformation that many of us um, long for. So when we're caught in one of these unwholesome states, mind states, um, can we pause? reflect, hmm, I'm a human being. And part of the experience of being a human being is that I will experience suffering whenever greed, hatred, delusion arise. And greed, hatred and delusion will arise when the relevant conditions come together. That's hard. That's hard. So turning towards with an acceptance of the, the stuff of being human, the challenges of being human is invaluable. We aren't then adding another layer of resistance or aversion to that primary unwholesome mind state. I've just noticed the time and I would look, like to talk a little bit more about investigating these before we do the meditation. Um, so I hope that's okay that the meditation is going to be a little bit later than usual. If, if you're somebody that really likes routine, 
Um, I apologise. I'm going to talk a little bit more and then we'll do the meditation. Um, because I do want to talk about investigating these mind states, investigating greed in this particular situation. Um, that, that investigation is one element to helping transform these uh, unwholesome mind states. And what does that mean um, to turn towards, to explore, to get to know better? Um, we might, in an investigation of, of greed, as we're talking about today, ask some questions. How does greed feel in the body? What happened immediately before the greed arose? So there we're looking at some of the conditioning factors. What emotions accompany greed? What story does greed create to get us on board, to convince us to do its work, to do the actions that um, it's putting out there. As we investigate, maybe we discover that somehow greed is connected with a fear of missing out, of not having enough, of not being acceptable, of being unworthy. There are other complex aspects connected to that urge, that feeling, have excessive um, desire. We might also see through that investigation, um, we might see more clearly the, the falsehood that is embedded in those implicit promises that greed convinces us with. Well, Catherine, you'll be happy if dot, 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 dot. Or, oh, this is what you need. This is what you deserve. What are, what are some of the ways that greed tries to convince us to do its work? We might become, in through the investigation, more aware of the either visual or auditory cues that can generate wanting. Might be seeing an attractive person, seeing food, seeing some fancy car. We'll all have different things that um, pretty quickly can generate that desire. We humans tend to have, probably less so in this group, I'm guessing, but humans tend to have an illusion that we make rational choices. And the process of investigating our mind um, reveals that there are hidden levers at work behind the scenes, moving us in different directions, often outside of our awareness. So the, the investigation, the questions, help us to, to understand and also to be able to relate to greed rather than from greed. We learn to develop a relationship with the content of our mind. So 
So in this process of investigation, um, we need to pause, take a little step backwards and turn towards what we often uh, move away from. Pause, turn towards. Those first two steps are in themselves a practice because so often our automatic reaction is not to see or to turn away. And it may be that there's an opportunity in the meditation that we do very, very shortly to um, see greed arise. Maybe it won't. Um, but the investigative process is also useful for any unskillful states of mind that arise rather than just immediately turning away. Oh, what's going on here? How does it feel in the body? What's the story? What happened before? Where's it moving me to? In um, the meditation tonight, I thought that I'd, in the first part of the meditation, um, touch on some of the, what are called the antidotes to greed. The primary antidote to greed is generosity. And as I was thinking about what else might be useful to cultivate to balance out um, the urgings, the arisings of greed, excuse me, I was also thinking that it, reflecting on abundance can be useful, reflecting on what we actually have. Um, because greed often, at least in my experience, can be connected with a sense of lack. I don't have enough. If I had more, I'd be happier. So that sense of enoughness, of abundance, and, and maybe even touching on gratitude. Um, so I thought we might do a little reflection around that to begin the meditation. And then for the last half of the meditation, simply a practice of grounding through the body, opening, letting go releasing the that that movement of opening of releasing um, feels the very antithesis of greed which is about grasping and having more and holding on to and keeping for oneself so that's my intention of course if you would prefer to do a different type of meditation tune me out and do whatever you would like I'm just going to grab my bell before I start So if you need to have a bit of a stretch or move before we um, start the meditation. And once you're comfortable, and I and I, I said once you're comfortable. So there's already 
that invitation to bring mindfulness to the body. How will you know you're comfortable other than through tuning in, bringing attention into how the body's feeling in this moment? And mindfulness, of course, is a vital component of the investigative process of being able to catch greed before it um, snowballs. So mindfulness is, is vital to working with these unwholesome mind states. And having a sense of the presence of the body. You can use the body, the whole body, as an anchor to come back to when the mind gets caught up in anything. This body resting. and breathing. And as we start Maybe bringing to mind something, anything in your life. It could be recent, it could be in the dim distant past that was generous. Where you acted in a generous way, when you felt generosity. It could be generosity with, with your money. Maybe you gave money to a homeless person. Maybe you donated money. Maybe you gave a gift. Or maybe reflecting on some generosity of time. We live in an age where we feel at times quite time poor. Giving somebody our time be a real act of generosity. Showing up. Spending time with somebody when there were 20 other things to do.
Maybe your generosity was in giving somebody the benefit of the doubt. Not needing to prove a point. Argue the case. Remembering as best you can an experience or experiences of generosity. As we do that, we strengthen our capacity to let go. Let go of our own tight focus on our own needs and wants. Open into a bigger sense of what's needed, what's good, what to do. It might be a sense of spaciousness that arises when you think of letting go of your resources, offering your time, opening being generous with another. Let's also spend a, a few minutes reflecting on, on the abundance that is already in our life. Now me saying that might for some people immediately trigger a sense of what's not present. And my intention in inviting us to recognize what we do have, the enoughness of our experience is not to deny that there, there may well be needs that are not met, but it's just for the moment to orient ourselves towards resting in what we do have, what is here. Our mind can very happily sit in the, in the lack and there may well be lack but it's unlikely to be the whole picture. Maybe there are places in your life where you, you do know that, ah, oh, I do have enough, my needs are met. Whether it's simply enough food to eat. Or enough clothes in your cupboard to stay warm. or a sense of where you live protects you well enough from the elements. 
feeling into the enoughness in your life. Maybe even rejoicing in the enoughness in your life. from this place where we've potentially touched into our capacity to be generous, rejoiced in that, and a sense of enoughness, even abundance. Letting go of the, the reflections and coming back to the experience of simply resting in the body. the enoughness of this moment. Of this breath. Perhaps tuning into the letting go that happens with each exhalation. We don't need to hold on to it. Allowing the breath to flow through us.
not needing to push away any mind state that arises. They're all useful things to investigate at times. We may pause and turn towards it and just get a sense of what's here. Investigate with curiosity, without judgment. And then let it be. Letting the attention come back into the body. Flow of the breath through the body. And holding on to any mind state that arises. Letting them come, letting them go.
Is it possible to be content with this moment just as it is? Not to need, want anything more.
Chris, maybe just before you open it up, I'd like to just put up a little poem by Hafiz. That sounds beautiful, Catherine, especially after the meditation. Thank you. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. When I was um, thinking about tonight's uh, theme, I remember this poem by Hafiz and the generosity of the sun. Just keeps on giving, not holding back its light, available all the time, out it goes. Connects nicely with the Metta Sutta too. Okay. Are you willing now, Catherine, to take questions or would you like to carry on with any aspect of your talk? Uh, look, there's a few things I can go on with, but um, I'm also happy to take to take questions if there are any. Okay, well, let, let's open it up for questions. I'm sure there are some questions here. Uh, would anybody like to put a question in the chat or would they like to unmute and uh, ask questions themselves? That would be wonderful if you do. Can I ask a question? Gloria, you're most welcome. It's lovely to have you with us this evening, please. Um, yes, like my question is that I never, I think I've never felt content in my life. Like, because I don't know, I, I think I know why, but I just, I think I kind of like unable to feel content. And I can, like, I can sometimes appreciate like I have food to eat or like I have a home to stay or like I I can like I can buy things that I want but I kind of like I have never I think I've never felt deep down in my heart that I have that sense of contentment mm -hmm. and because I heard that this is really important I wonder um how to like really cultivate that if I have never felt it in my whole life. Thank you. Mm, thanks. Mm. And I, I feel that um, that sense of of the absence um, that the foreignness of the the experience. What what arose for me is a wondering whether how it feels, how does appreciation feel? You mentioned appreciation, that that there is at times a sense of appreciation. Um, so so my sense is, and I don't know if this is accurate, but my sense is that you know all these internal. Um, mind states that we have and they could be thoughts, they could be emotions, they could be urges, 
So um, like mindfulness, like greed, like appreciation, like fear, all of these um, feel like they can be on a dial. We can have little bits of something and a bit more of something else and a, a, a touch of this and a lot of that. Um, so I'm just wondering, I'm, I'm, I'm inviting you to tune into the dial of appreciation. And for the moment, have, have that as your focus. When you, when you think about that dial of appreciation, at its at, at its time when when it's the most um, at its highest for you, what does that feel like? Um, I think I think maybe I would kind of feel happy about the thing that like that I had, and but. At the same time, for most of the time, what comes after is like the realization of the feeling of how much I don't have. Like they come together because the appreciation of like I have this, I have that. And then what comes together is like I don't have this and I don't have that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and the, the lacks. Um, may be absolutely part of the experience of life. Um, and we know that the human mind's negativity bias will take us there, will take us to the lack. It will remember the lack. It will focus on the lack. It will give more importance to the lack. So we know that our mind has a bias in that direction. And it's not to deny that the lack is really there, but our mind will give it much more weight than the things that you were appreciating. And it may be that some of the lacks need to be attended to in other ways, um, but one of the things that we can do in attending to the enoughness, the appreciation, that little moment of happiness that you mentioned, that little moment of happiness that you mentioned is to choose for another second just to let that in, just to know that, ah, oh, this is happiness. And bam, there's your mind straight back to, yeah, but. Yeah, thanks, gotcha, gotcha. That's true, that's true. And here's happiness. So we don't want to fight with our mind about anything um, because in the fights we just, our mind's too clever. So, yeah, great. Yep, that's true. And there's happiness. Just for a moment I'm just going to hang out in happiness. Just for a moment. And how does that feel in my body? And, and then, bam, off we go back again. Um, One of the things that can also happen is that we get so fixed in our, and I don't know if this is part of your experience or not, Gloria, but we can get so fixed in who we think we are um, that it doesn't allow us to really recognise the times when that identity that we've become very fixed in 
isn't the case. Um, so it can be useful just to open up some of those um, really strong ideas about who we are. Um, I'm just thinking about it in my own, from my own self. Um, one of one of the things that I really strongly identified with was um, not needing anybody. I don't need anybody in my life. I'm independent. I can do this all. Uh, and it's been a really, um, <laughs> it's been a really welcome um, interrupting of that particular identity, sense of identity, um, to move a little bit into oh, the possibility of um, more connection and more relationship and that kind of thing. Um, I might just leave it at that if that's okay, Gloria. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right. Is there anyone else? We're having a terrific rainstorm in the background here at the moment, but uh, I hope you can hear me okay. Um, is there anyone else who'd like to unmute and ask a question? Uh, thank, thank you, Melanie and Marion. Hello. Um, my question is very broad. Uh, it's about like lay life and monastic life, like at this frontier in between. Um, I, I just think that when you're very young, uh, it's very difficult to like jump on the monastic life and make the decision. But if you wait, like when you get older, um, it's it's more difficult to get into monastic life because maybe you you have sickness and it's like a burden for the uh, monastic community or uh, you're not very uh, physically strong so you you're like it's like being sick like you're a burden so I'm just wondering what are your thoughts on that and I'm happy that we have a lay person because uh, most of the time we have monastics who have actually crossed the frontier and are in the monastic life. And I'm just wondering, I'm just thinking, uh, I really want to develop the path. And the Buddha said that pe people rightly go forth. So I, I suppose that's the best way. That's how I understood it. But I feel that even if I get, I don't know, I live 40 more years, I won't be ready to go into monastic life and it will be too late. So thank you. That's, I hope my question is more or less clear. Thank you. It is, it is. And what an enormous question, um, particularly given my very limited experience of only being a lay person and also feeling like I need another 40 lifetimes plus, 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 you know. Um, but it's interesting, I guess what, what struck me is the, um, sort of the need to get the right answer. Um, and 
what would happen if you just, and I'm not suggesting this, I'm not suggesting this, I'm completely sorry, because I have no idea what's right for you. But what would happen if you decided next week to become a nun? Well, I'm very, I really feel I'm not ready. I can't shave my hair. They're all white, but I like dye them. You know, I'm like very much attached to the body. So I just can't, but I still, I don't know. I When I listen to um, Dharma talks by Ajahn Pramali or other monks and nuns, I, I see that they decided to go into monastic life when they were around 30, which is quite young or maybe before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and we know in Asian countries, um, kids become monastics um so you know when's the right time um and i don't think <laughs> my experience of the monastics is that they haven't given up all of their attachments they've chosen a different path to work with the attachments which they have um if we wait until we're perfect to take the plunge um, and, and I'm really not pushing you. Um, I'm just sort of playing this. I, I have no no um, uh, particular agenda, but I'm, I'm just sort of playing with that. Oh, I'm not ready because I'm attached. Yeah, well, that's that'll be one way of working with attachments. <laughs> I've been very naughty here, it feels. Um, anyway. I don't know how you even know the answer to that. Um, yeah. My sense, let me tell you a quick little story just looking at the time. Um, I don't know if this story is at all relevant, but it, it, for some reason it's popped into my head. I once heard a um, program on the radio, it was at Easter time, and it was about um, sacrifice. Uh, and a Muslim woman was talking about um, looking after her child who had a very severe um, disability. Her husband had abandoned her early in after the child was born um, and her whole life, this child which was now, I don't know, something like 10, 11, 12, required intensive attention. Her, her life was pretty much devoted to looking after the um, child. And the interviewer said to her, mm, don't you sometimes feel resentment at having sacrificed your life to your child and not having a life. And she said, but this is my life. And for me, the message there was, whatever it is that we're doing, it doesn't really matter at one level, we can make it our practice. Um, and so maybe that's a, an encouragement back to lay life. Because um, <laughs> whatever we're doing, there's there's always there's always an opportunity to develop in this relationship, in this relationship, in this loving relationship, in this conflictual relationship, in how I consume, in some of my attachments, you know, however it is that we're living it's always an opportunity for, for practice. Um, and you can see I've got no idea. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Gita. Right. Yes, Gita, yes, thank you. I'll just make a comment because I can relate to that question um, of um, 
doing a three-month retreat and asking this monk, I went to the retreat specifically to ask this question. So at the end of the three months when I asked him, you know, about becoming, going into robes, he said, yep, ehi, which means come. That's what the Buddha used to say. Anyway, so I thought about it. I went, came back home and I thought, man, no, I don't think so, not just yet. <laughs> so, and with time, now I look back, this was some 30 years ago, I look back now and I think, my goodness, I'm so glad I didn't take the step because I really wanted to take that step because I thought this was the way to go, the, the, the golden way to this, develop the spiritual path. But what happened later, so many things have happened. I met a nun who said to me, don't even think about it until you've really lived life. She had the child and everything before she became a nun. Anyway, then, then I had the experience of looking after my parents who were elderly and now they've died. That was only about six years ago. And to me, I look back now and I think that was the best thing, the most worthwhile thing I have done in my entire life was looking after these two people who had looked after me, of course, but learning about caring, about just doing what needed to be done. And the, and I was initially cross with my sister because she was supposed to do a lot of it. But she went, kept going off on retreats. And I'm thinking, hey, hang on a minute. We were supposed to take turns. Anyway, off she went. And then I thought, hey, I am on retreat. I'm a, I've got the front seat here. Go away, don't come back. This is my spot. And I'm learning from this and I'm really appreciating it. So I think you practice with what you've got. And to me, that was the best thing that's happened is that I didn't go into rooms. Now I'm retired, I live by myself. So I am in my kuti, basically. And I can, although I have to still support myself, that's okay. You you do what you can. But I have more solitude than most of the monks that I know. And, you know, I can live very, in a very frugal sort of a lifestyle. So it's up to me to decide what is actually useful in this practice and, you know, develop it that way. Because even at the time of the Buddha, there were many lay people, lay women and men who were enlightened. You see, so I think we can get a false sort of, a, we can get fixated on that, as I was really fixated, as we can with, you know, other things and push ourselves to make a decision, we're forcing ourselves into something. So I think you'll know if it is the right, when it is the right time. You won't think about your hair, you just go, you know, because it just won't matter anymore, you see. So... Anyway, those are my little comments. <laughs> oh, beautifully put, Gita. Thank you very much. Uh, Catherine, um, we don't seem to have very much in the chat. We have some comments on things that have gone through, which I think everybody can read. Is there anybody else who'd like to ask a question before we wind up this evening? Uh, this else? is Martha. I would like to. Oh, May hi, I? Martha. Well, I just have a question about how, you know, I understand. I think this was so helpful you know, to think of um, generosity in a different way other than just money, you know, time. And 
uh, you know, what my state of mind should be. Breathing in, be breathing out, generous, breathing in, presence, sobriety, etc. Um, so, if part of, uh, Catherine, I want you to help me understand, is it just impermanence that we are going to rely on for the elimination of negative states? Because in right effort, you know, we're, we're, we're working on, I think I got it from the BSWA folks. It was, you know, that right effort, part of right effort is eliminating negative states, but I understand you said so well about denial and suppression just don't work so would it be possible for you to talk about right effort with the elimination of negative states is it just it not through denial or, or suppression of those states but uh is it just waiting you know this too shall pass due to the impermanence of all things could you talk about that just for a sec i'm sorry i know it's late um, maybe just a, a couple of things there um, before we finish. One of the things um, that I, one of the ways that I like to think about what is happening as we bring our attention to an unwholesome mind state, we're bringing our attention and we're bringing with that, ideally, wisdom and compassion. And in the presence of wisdom and compassion, these unwholesome mind states are, are processed in a way and integrated in a way that the power of them is um, softened. Now, it, it's, it's not a one-off, one-step process and we've done it, but every time we can hold with mindfulness, with compassion, with wisdom, seeing these things as conditioned, seeing these things as impermanent, knowing that they have causes, who knows when they started, when they were laid down in our psyche, in our being, in our... And if we can hold all of that, see it clearly, hold it kindly, the intensity, bit by bit by bit, um, drops away and I've certainly seen that with some of the the defilements that I've brought that kind of approach to it it's a long process um, and I think for me the compassion and the non-identification because it has been a really important part of it too to see this is just being a natural thing that's arisen due to causes and conditions that um, came about not because of my choosing so it's not personal it's not my mind state you know I'm not a bad person because of this this has happened how can I meet this how can I hold this how can I attend to this um, see it for what it is bring compassion to both the experience and the experiencer and bit by bit over time that they're much less powerful they're much less capturing um yeah i don't know if any of that's helpful um marta yes it is so they're right yeah it's not like we're trying to push the thing out when we bring compassion to it yeah right right yeah right right we're just bringing in the 
yeah, compassion and the wisdom and the non-identification. And I can feel that. Yeah. I can bring it. It is much less contracted and much less tight. Those things that you said in the beginning are associated with, with greed, you know. So, I just say, anyway. yippee, Marta, yippee. How good. <laughs> much less contracted. How great. Yes. That. yes. So I appreciate this so much. Just no, no, no. That's it for me. Thank you. Lovely. Yeah. No. Keep on the path. I think is what I was saying. Oh yes, yes, yes. I am. I wish I were here. Let's do it in person. Hello. Yeah. Indeed.